This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad if you'd open those with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, verses 12 through 17 is where we're going to be today. Today is the first Sunday of November, and so today's message is going to be another one of those uh, topical messages. So we won't, uh, I won't try to exposit, explain, and try to apply the entire chunk of the passage that I pointed to here this morning. In fact, really, I'm going to emphasize, try to emphasize one verse out of this whole passage uh, in particular and try to, to really squeeze it for all that we might gain from it this morning. Uh, but if you, if you would like uh, to come, if, you're, if this is a, uh, an out-of-the-ordinary Sunday for you and you happen to be here and you're not normally here on a Sunday, we'll come back next week and we'll go back to our regular exposition uh, through the book of Acts. So we're walking through uh, that book a little bit at a time and trying to find out what God would have uh, to, to tell us from each of those passages in consecutive order. Uh, but today we're, we're focusing yet again on another one of those FBC Diana values, and that is an area of conviction that really is is necessary, at minimum helpful, I want to lean towards necessary, in gathering a local church. So we might have disagreement with fellow Christian brothers and sisters uh, on all sorts of matters, but there are are some things that while we might disagree with fellow brothers and sisters, we really kind of need to have agreement among our church family in order to have unity and to progress as a church family together. I think this is one of those areas, and I'm going to preach it as such this morning. The topic for today is congregational singing. And so I'd like to start by asking you, what do you think of our singing here at FBC Diana? Is it, is it something that you enjoy very much? Is it something that you could really kind of give or take? Is it something that you participate well in? Is it something that you kind of hold back from? Is it of high quality? Is it of low quality? How would you evaluate such a thing? Would you measure it by the skill of the musicians? The skill of the singers? How about by the way that the congregation participates in the songs that we sing? How would you evaluate this? Would you evaluate the quality of the music by the sort of stylistic preference? Oh, I like that song. I don't really like that song. Oh, that's a, that's a style I enjoy. That's a rhythm I can keep. How do you evaluate these things? What if I told you that the congregation's singing is, is one significant, maybe a major way, a major sign to suggest uh, where the health of the congregation actually is? That, that a congregation that, that sings well together, strongly together, is one that is apparently, it's not the only indicator, but an indicator of a church's health. That, it, that a congregation that sings well together, that sings strongly together, is a healthy church. And one that doesn't sing very strongly is one that is, at least it indicates that there might be some lack of church health. It was back in early 2019 when I was about a month or so into a pastoral internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. 
Uh, the internship there was five months. For those of you who've been here for a little while, you will remember well that time when I was away and Barry Ward and Cody Howard filled the pulpit in those five plus months that I was, that I was gone. So thankful for those men investing well here. And many of you stepped up to lead in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, it, it was uh, still at the place when I was in D.C. in that first couple of months there that I was not sure if I was going to come back to Diana. And we were on a Sunday evening, uh, we were at the Sunday evening uh, prayer and praise gathering of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, just like every Sunday night. Uh, we were singing just like every Sunday night. I was holding Malachi so that he wouldn't uh, be running off too much. Uh, and of course, he was singing loud because he likes the song time. Cassie and Micah were standing there beside me, so it was a perfectly normal Sunday evening, and the congregation was singing so strongly together, which again was perfectly normal for, for that congregation. And it was, it was at that particular service, I, I can't remember exactly what day it was or what song we were singing, but it was, it was a moment at which I was, I was gripped by the strong desire that FBC Diana would be able to experience what I was experiencing right then that we as a church family would be able to experience that kind of boisterous, loud, everybody participating, singing together. And I thought, man, I so much. And in fact, I turned to Cass and said that I so much want FBC Diana to experience this. That, I look back on that time, and uh, that was a factor in motivating me to want to come back to Diana. is because I wanted, I wanted that kind of experience for us. Not that I could produce it in myself, but you understand, I wanted to see FBC Diana experience that. I'm so glad that I came back to Diana, and I'm so glad for what the Lord has been doing among us and continues to do among us. It was just a couple of months ago, maybe, on a Sunday night where we were gathered together. Many of you in the room right now were here on a Sunday night at our second Sunday of the month, prayer and praise gathering, and we were singing together. Uh, we, we sit a little closer together typically on Sunday nights. We kind of gather a bit closer here in the middle of the room. And there's, there's minimal accompaniment. So there's just the guitar and Russ and somebody else is leading us in song in order for us to be able to sing together. And I, I kind of felt a very similar experience as, to, as what I did in 2019, where I could, hear, I could hear a lot of folks singing together. Increasingly, I'm seeing those Sunday nights as a time where I, I, I hear us singing louder together and and enjoying that time together more and more. I thank the Lord for that. On Sunday morning, we're a bit more spread out, but even on Sunday mornings, I'm noticing us singing better together, and I'm so thankful for the way the Lord is working among us and producing such a, a joy together. I think that is a sign of increasing church health among our own congregation, and I'm thankful for what the Lord is doing. I want to tell you, though, that, that our singing, it's not, again, it's not the only sign, but it's an indicator of our church health. And so in our singing, it's one of the ways that we will show and that we will vocalize what we really believe about God, what we really believe about ourselves, what we really believe about the local church, what we really believe about the gospel, what we really believe about our own sinfulness and our own need for a Savior. So why do you sing on Sunday mornings? Or why do you not sing? Uh, to whom or for whom do you sing? What's the motive and then what's the, who's the audience? What sorts of songs do you expect to sing when we gather together in the name of Christ on a Sunday morning? Now, these are the kind of questions that I hope to try to address today. 
And we'll start by looking to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Would you mind standing with me as I read this primary passage for today? Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. An admonition to a local church there in Colossae. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. The main topical point really kind of zeroing in on verse 16 in our in our passage that's our primary passage for today. But the main topical point that I'd like to, to point out today is that congregational singing is one of the main ways the Word of God reverberates through the church in grateful praise, mutual edification, and evangelistic zeal. Congregational singing is one of the main ways the Word of God reverberates through the church, not just not the building, the people, in grateful praise, mutual edification, and evangelistic zeal. For those who like to take notes, the points are going to be four. First, considering the reality that worship is bigger than singing. But then secondly, really getting into the meat. Why do we sing? To whom or for whom do we sing? And then lastly, what should we sing? So without any further introduction, let's dive straight in. The first point that I want to make today is that worship is bigger than singing. So while today I'm really focusing in on congregational singing, I don't want to give off the impression that singing equals worship. Singing is a way to worship. It is a form of worshipful activity, but singing is not in and of itself worship. Worship is an all-encompassing way of life. It is living in a posture of gratitude and glory. Look especially at verse 17 in our passage this morning. Verse 17 says, whatever you do, so everything, in word or deed, literally everything, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is for his glory, giving thanks, there's gratitude, to God the Father through him. So again, worship is not just one aspect of something we do in life. Worship is an all-encompassing life posture. It is an all-encompassing life posture of gratitude, thanks to God, and glory, giving God the glory. One theologian said it like this, that worship in the Bible is a comprehensive category describing the Christian's total existence. And he went on to say that the worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him, with God, on the terms that he, God, proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. So that's the through him, through Christ in our passage, verse 17. So through Christ, through a savior, through a mediator, 
God, the Father, gives sinners like us access to him on terms that he proposes, and literally everything that we do in life should be lived to the glory of God because of, on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ and enabled or empowered by the Holy Spirit. Everything we do can and should be an act of worship. Just as a quick side note, if something that we're doing cannot be done as an act of worship, well, it just might be something we ought not be doing. That's one way to figure out what sin is. So a second feature of this, though, so uh, worship is all-encompassing. It's an all-encompassing way of life. However, we do want to recognize that we, we are gathering in the name of Christ and, and doing something special or different than our individual lives of, of all-encompassing worship throughout the week. So when we gather together on the Lord's Day, on Sunday morning, we do worship communally, that is, as a body or as a society, as a people. But we worship throughout the entire Lord's Day gathering, not just a special worship time or worship segment of our Sunday morning services. At every aspect of our service, we all are intended to be worshiping at every aspect. So when we read Scripture together, we should all be actively listening to the words meditating upon their meaning and clinging to their trustworthiness. Now think about the lengthy passage that Scott read for us after the prayer of confession this morning. And so when he's reading through that passage, it's speaking of the the way in which Jesus enters into the holy place and offers himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for those he came to save. Brothers and sisters, that is something we should be clinging to this very moment. And indeed, as he's reading those words, we should be clinging to the trustworthiness of such a great promise, especially after confessing our sins together and remembering our own desperate need for such a Savior. So when we pray together, we should be joining our hearts in prayers of praise, in prayers of confession, in pleading for God's help. We should be praising God with whoever's leading us in a prayer of praise, praising along with him. We should be confessing our own sin, acknowledging, yes, that's exactly what I do too. Oh, yes, that's me too. Oh, man, that's, that's totally me. We should be confessing those things to God, even as someone else is leading us in prayer. When we ask for God's help, we should be recognizing, oh, yes, Lord, we need your help in these ways. Yes, Lord, please help in this way. When we gather around Scripture together during the time of preaching to hear the Bible explained and applied, we should all be actively aiming to understand the preacher's exegesis, his interpretation of the passage. So right now, even as I'm talking, you should be aiming to understand how is it that Mark got that from that passage? What is it that he sees there, especially in verse 16, as he's been telling us, that's, that's helping him to see what he's, what he's drawing out there? You should be aiming to follow the logical argument of the sermon. Is, is Mark traveling in a, in a linear direction and helping to make a case for something? Is he, is he undergirding that main point he said was his point for the day? And how is this being applied to my own life? When the preacher asks probing questions, we should think about those. Maybe even write those down and think about them later on. We should eagerly embrace the application that's offered by way of the preached message. Insofar as the preacher is being faithful to Scripture in the application, we should receive these applications as God's own application to our lives, moving and touching areas that might otherwise go unexamined. When we express thanks for God's provision, and we aim to invest in those things that God values, even as we forego spending money on those things that the world values. So in our, in our offering time, we're, we're investing, we're saying, thank you, God, for your provision that you've given to me, and we're investing in those things that God values, the local church, 
missions around the world, uh, attempting to see word ministry uh, be bolstered here in Diana and beyond. We're investing in those things that God values, even sometimes foregoing the things the world values, and we're doing that out of worship to God, recognizing that He is worthy and what He says is true. We're committing to that, actually, with our own pocketbooks when we give in an offering together, and we should all be doing that. We should all contribute, not out of compulsion, but we should all be doing this cheerfully and as we are able. If you have more questions about that, feel free to come and ask me after the service is over with. So all of these are part of our communal worship together as we gather on the Lord's Day. This is part of what we do as a church body. So then congregational singing is one aspect of all of that stuff that I just mentioned. So along with these other elements, singing is a way that we worship God together as a congregation, as a body of believers. And so when we sing together, we join our voices in musical worship. But when we sing, we do so much more than praise. We do so much more than praise. This leads me into point number two. Why do we sing? Why do we sing? Well, the first answer, the the most obvious answer, I think, to this sort of a question, why do we sing, is because God has loosened our tongues to be able to do so. In that, he has redeemed guilty sinners like us. One of the main reasons why we sing is because Jesus has saved us when we sing of his glory. We sing of the beauty and the wonder of the good news of the gospel. There is a gospel. And we sing songs that highlight the good news of the gospel. So we want to sing those songs, maybe even all the more, loud, all the more loudly, because it's highlighting the beauty and the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ. So friends, whether you've been to church your whole life or this is your very first time to come into church, the, the core message of Christianity is that there's a savior for guilty sinners. The core message of Christianity is not that you and I are great. It's not that if we just work a little bit harder, then God will, he'll love us and bless us. Now, the core message of the gospel of, uh, the core message of Christianity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it begins with the reality that you and I are sinful wretches, that we deserve nothing other than God's judgment and his wrath. But in God's infinite mercy and kindness, he has looked upon us with grace and he has decided to lavish his mercy and love upon guilty sinners like us in the climax of that story of the unfolding of his redeeming love. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we haven't, to die underneath the penalty that we deserve, and to conquer death so that guilty sinners like us can have a savior. One who has beat the ultimate and final curse foe of sinners like us. We die because we're sinful. Humanity dies. All creation is under the curse of God, which is, is seen again and again in the repetitive nature of death. And Jesus comes and conquers death. And by way of his sacrificial life, living perfectly under God's law, fulfilling every requirement of it, dying underneath the penalty that you and I deserve, and then conquering death, he shows that he is the one who can save guilty sinners like us. And that the God of the universe has stepped in and done the unthinkable. So we sing. We sing because we've been redeemed. Look at the passage, verse 12. The church in Colossae was called the chosen ones of God, holy and beloved. It is precisely because of this 
indicative, the indicatives in the, in the scriptures are those things that are true. It's statements that are, that are indicating a reality. And so the indicative statement then gives rise to the imperative, you must do. But the indicative is something we, we, we have to not pass by. If all we get is what we must do, well, then we've missed what the Bible is all about. The Bible begins with something that God has already done. And then comes the here's what we should do. So what is, the, what is the stuff they should do? Well, they should put on compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, verse 12. But all of this comes by way of them already being recipients of God's own compassion, of God's own humility, of God's own kindness. And so because God has been compassionate and shown himself to be exceedingly humble and kind and, and compassionate to them, this is how these Christians then are to be compassionate and kind and humble. Or how about with, with forgiveness in verse 13? The, the, the uh, two are put side by side. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So their own forgiveness comes not, not first out of a command, but first out of something that's already been done. First out of what Christ has already done for them. The Lord Jesus has already forgiven you. Now go and re- reflect, echo the same heart of forgiveness. Well, the same is true in verse 16 with regard to the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's the word of Christ that is meant to dwell in them richly. And so this word of Christ has been given to them as Christians. The word of God has been given to them, if in nothing more than the gospel, but certainly more than that, but not less than that, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus has come to their lives. And because the gospel has come to them, now their tongues are loose to sing of this good news. The central theme of all of our songs should be the grace of God in Christ. And because the gospel renews our minds, it invigorates our hearts and loosens our tongues, we should proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. So we should sing songs like, Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. We sing songs like Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We should sing songs like it is well. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. I will not be singing any of these today. You're welcome to let the tune rattle around in your head if you like. I'll recite these lyrics. As I've said several times, I'm glad to be singer number two, but never singer number one. So we should sing, first, because we've been redeemed. But secondly, we should sing because... Singing is one of the main ways that the word of God reverberates through the church. So again, look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How's that going to happen? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And how, how specifically is this teaching and admonishing happening in verse 16? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The teaching and admonishing is not separated from the the singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But indeed, this is one of the ways that we teach and admonish one another. 
The word of Christ, it takes deep root in our hearts and in our souls when we teach, that is, teach sound doctrine, and when we admonish, that is, when we warn, rebuke, and instruct one another by singing. So let me give some examples. In times of tragedy and loss, we must remember God's sovereignty and his goodness. And so we sing songs like, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. And we're reminded, in the midst of our difficult time, in the midst of our grief, God doesn't change. He is faithful. Even though we might not be able to see it in this moment. In times of prosperity and comfort, we must remember the fleeting nature of worldly treasures and the glories of the life to come. So we might sing a song like, My worth is not in what I own. Not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. So I rejoice in my Redeemer. He is the greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other, for my soul is satisfied in Him alone. In times of persecution and affliction, we must remember Christ's present victory. That He is the King victorious now, even though our circumstances might not feel that way. And so we sing a song like one of the ones we sang last week. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. For he is our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. How about in times of guilt and shame? Well, we must remember the unfathomable depths of God's love and mercy for sinners like us in Christ. When we're feeling guilty and particularly ashamed. Maybe this last week, you've been particularly sinful. And you think to yourself, how can God possibly love a guilty sinner like me? Maybe this morning, you're feeling some particular weight upon your shoulders. So we should sing songs like, what love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, but he counts not their son. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. These songs then, they reverberate throughout our church family and they hit each of us wherever we might be. Some of us might be particularly self-assured or self-righteous this morning. And so we need to remember our utter hopelessness and helplessness apart from grace. And so we might sing, nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sing because we've been redeemed. We sing because we all need to hear the word of Christ reverberate throughout our church family. And this is one of the primary ways that that happens, is as we sing together. Number three, for whom do we sing? And so we sing, why do we sing? We sing because we've been redeemed and because we want the word of Christ to be reverberating, echoing throughout our church family by way of our songs. For whom then do we sing? Well, we sing, first of all, for God. 
We sing to God because of who he has revealed himself to be. God has revealed himself to be the God of creative power, the God of gracious kindness, the God of supreme wisdom and sovereignty. And so we praise God for his attributes. We sing songs like all praise to him. All praise to him, the God of light who formed the mountains by his might. All praise to him who names the stars that sing his fame in skies afar. All praise to him who humbly came to bear our sorrow, sin and shame. Who lived to die, who died to rise, the all-sufficient sacrifice. We thank God for his provision for us. And so we might sing a song that speaks of God's daily blessings. His daily provision for us. Like all my help comes from the Lord. When I am weak, he gives me strength. When I am lonely, he comforts me. When I'm tired of the load that I'm bearing, he gives me courage to bear my share. All my help comes from the Lord. We savor and enjoy God because he has revealed himself to be one who is not only supreme, but also one who is ours as Christians. So we savor and enjoy him as our own. We, we remember what he's promised to do, what he has done in our lives. And so we might sing a song like, All Glory Be to Christ. When on that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall be, shall ever be, shall ever his people be. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. So we should sing to God. But we should also sing to one another. So I think probably with uh, sub-point number one, with, with the point that we're on now, I think most everybody's like, oh, of course we should do that. But this one I want you to really key in on. We should sing to one another. We should sing to one another because one of the main things, the main thing I want to argue, that is our mission as a local church is to edify, is to make disciples by edifying and building up one another. This is the thing that God has called us to do. So edification and building up are not explicitly found in the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. But it's what the church, it's what the letter is all about. So you won't find that word, especially edify, build up, but you'll find that this is the context of the letter. Uh, th- this is the substance of it, I should say. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is writing to them, he says, and praying for them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is building up. This is edification. That Christians would, would bear more fruit and increase in the knowledge of God. That's a summary of what it means to be edified, to be built up. And that's what this letter is all about. As I said, building up, building up one another, uh, encouraging one another through edification, these are sort of a summary of what it looks like in the local church context to make disciples among fellow Christians. And this is what Jesus has commissioned us all to do, Matthew chapter 28. So church members, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, are to strive to excel in building up or edifying the church, the rest of the members. Also in 1 Corinthians 14, when Christians come together as a church, the Apostle Paul writes, let all things be done for building up. 
or for edification. The ministry for the saints, for which the saints are equipped in Ephesians chapter 4, by the church's pastors or elders, is the ministry of building up the body of Christ. So this is repeated throughout the New Testament as one of the core efforts, the core tasks that we have as a local church. And so the, con- the, the word is not there in the book of Colossians, but the concept is all over the place. And it's especially found in our, pa- in our passage, Colossians chapter 3, look at verses 14 and 15. These believers are called one body and they were bound together in love and in the peace of Christ. And then verse 16 says, so then let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. So then this singing is, is, is the emphasized way in which they are to build up one another in the context of them being a body of believers bound by the love and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's being emphasized as the way that they will build one another up. And this is what I was getting to earlier when I was talking about the word of God reverberating through our church body as we sing songs. So brothers and sisters, when when we gather together on a Sunday morning, we're not we're not primarily picking songs that are to be your favorites that just kind of move you best. Rather, we're picking songs that are going to help us tell each other true things about ourselves, about God, about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then you do the person sitting next to you a disservice if they can't hear you sing. We intentionally should be singing the songs to each other. So other folks in the room need to hear you sing. When there are those of us, this is especially true of those of us who are church members here, who know each other in a more personal way. When there's a church member who's going through a particularly difficult time, and the rest of us know that he or she is going through a difficult time, and we hear him or her singing songs of praise to God, clinging to the reality that God is faithful and true, this does something to our own hearts. It challenges us. Oh God, help me be like him. Help me be like her whenever I'm going through that hard time. Oh God, look at what you're doing in his life or in her life that they so strongly trust, believe, cling to who you are and what you've promised that even in the midst of what I know they're facing, they're still singing and praising God to you, praising you. This is just one example. There are numerous ways in which we speak to those sitting beside us, those standing nearby when we are singing together. Our own souls will be challenged, corrected, comforted, strengthened, and instructed when we sing to one another, regardless of how well we can keep in tune. This is especially true for our children, but this brings me to a third audience that we might have in mind. So the first audience, God himself, the triune God of our salvation. The second audience, those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ that we are singing to edify them, to build them up in all sorts of ways. But a third audience are those that don't right now love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, who are with us in the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. So think especially of our kids. 
In case you didn't know it, moms and dads, I'm not sure how this escaped your attention, but our kids do not come into this world as Christians. Uh, they come into this world as rotten, sinful, uh, sinful sinners. Uh, they, they do not have to be taught how to do wrong. Kids naturally head in the wrong direction. Uh, it is parents. God has given kids parents in order to shape and mold them to head in a better direction than in the one they would naturally go. So then when our kids, when we bring our kids with us on Sunday mornings, we do not help them by assuming that they are Christians. We do not help our kids by assuming that they are Christians when they're with us on Sunday mornings or any other time for that matter. But what we do is we show them what it looks like to gather as a Christian in the way that we do it. And so we don't dissuade them from being a Christian, God forbid. But we also don't assume Christianity. We teach them what it looks like to live life as a Christian all day, every day, and to gather as a Christian on the Lord's Day as they watch us. So mom or dad, is your Christianity believable by the way your kid hears you sing on Sunday morning? Does your child believe that you believe the stuff that we're all singing here by the way you sing or don't sing? Does your participation on Sunday mornings when we gather together on the Lord's Day, does it indicate to those around you who might not be Christians, especially your kids, think about that for a second, we'll get on to others in a minute, but especially kids, does it indicate that you really are believing these things, that you really are Trusting in God, relying upon Christ, clinging to the promises of the Lord. I'm not a particularly emotive person myself, so I'm not asking about how emotional do you look on the outside. I, I don't really care if you look very emotive or not at all. But is, is the way you participate, is it believable according to your own personality? Do your kids believe you when you sing these songs? Brothers and sisters, we... We are responsible to disciple our children and our grandchildren. And when we sing songs together as a body of believers on Sunday, our kids not only see us, but they see other Christians singing these these songs together. And our kids, many of them, uh, are not able to follow the sermon very well. Uh, They can't stick with me very long. Some of you are having a tough time doing that. Uh, Some of our kids are not able to, to pay attention very well to the prayers that we pray together. But they'll hear the songs we sing, and those words will stick in their heads. And I just wonder, how appreciative are we that because our kids kept, kept coming with us to church day Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, that they have biblical doctrine rattling around in their heads, even as adults, because they came to big church with mom and dad for year after year after year. How many of us can remember doing that? Those of you who had moms and dads who, who took you to church with, with regularity, or maybe you went with a friend. And as a kid, you can remember the songs that you sang. That stuff will stick with you much longer than any spoken word will. So we sing God to one another and with our non-Christian kids in mind. Not only our non-Christian kids, but also our non-Christian friends and family who might be coming along with us one Sunday. Maybe sporadically here and there. Maybe, Maybe they have seen a bunch of stuff happen up on the stage, the praying, the preaching, the singing. But when we sing together, we all get to testify to the truths we actually believe. And the entire congregation gets to participate 
in speaking a word of truth about the gospel, about how Jesus truly is satisfying to our hearts and our lives, about how we all are really resting on the hope of the promises of God's word. But also nominal Christians. So in East Texas, there's some overlap, I think, a lot in this non-Christian friends and family and uh, nominal Christians. Nominal Christians are that category of folk that say that they're Christian. They might even think that they're Christians, but in reality, they just aren't. They are not following Christ. They are not clinging to the hope of the gospel. And so they have sort of a a Christian subculture, maybe a, a familiarity with Christian terms or Christian experiences, but they aren't really actually following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if if they walk into a church that doesn't really pay very much attention to the songs that we're singing, it's mostly just those you know really strange people who like to do that on the stage and lead everybody else. They're the ones who sing. They're the ones who play those instruments. And the rest of us, we just kind of observe for the time. We We endure that period. And then we all get to leave for lunch. If they go to a church service like that, well, then they might not be very, they might think that they're very odd, this, this nominal Christian person who's attending for some strange reason on a Sunday morning. Maybe there's some life crisis has happened. Maybe they've been compelled to come along with you. Maybe it's Mother's Day or Easter, and so they just happen to show up on a Sunday morning. But if they walk into a church and they participate in a service, in a gathering, where all the Christians in the room, they seem strangely excited about singing together of the glories of Christ. Strangely compelled by the truths of the gospel that they're singing together in these songs, those nominal Christian folks start thinking, "What's what's going? On? I'm I'm different. I don't feel like he looks like he feels. I don't I don't feel on the inside what she seems to be feeling there. What's up with that?" So then, our singing can be a way that we challenge the nominal Christians among us even if it's for just a Sunday here or there. Maybe, by God's grace, they'll be fascinated and intrigued and want to ask us, why is it that you sing that way? What is it that gathers you unlikely folks to be together and to sing with such joy in the way that you do? What gives? So finally then, point number four, what should we sing? So, why should we sing? We should sing because we've been redeemed. We should sing because we all need to hear these words that we're singing. For whom should we sing? We should sing to God. We should sing to one another. We should sing for those non-Christians among us that they should recognize that we really do believe the stuff we're singing together. So what, what then should we sing? What's going to foster this kind of experience among our church family? Well, in verse 16, again, I told you I was going to really emphasize that one, and so I have. It's the word of Christ that is to dwell among the Christians uh, richly. So then the word of Christ should be that which regulates and saturates our songs. So the first feature of the kinds of songs that we should sing is that they should be regulated by Scripture. We want to remember that not all religious efforts are good or even acceptable to God. So one author put it like this. Uh, saying that uh, in the Old Testament, some worship was regarded as unacceptable to God. You can see that in, in many instances. And this is a reminder that what is impressive or seems appropriate to us may be offensive to him. Not just not good, but offensive. 
In fact, as the author went on to say, when New Testament writers talk about acceptable worship, they similarly imply that there are some attitudes and activities which are definitely not pleasing to God. So again, singing is not all that we do to worship. We do much more than sing uh, in in an act of worship. Our whole lives should be lived in worship to God. But especially singing, just like every other aspect of our worship, it should be regulated by Scripture. So we should sing songs that align with Scripture. Better off, we should sing songs that we draw from Scripture itself so that the lyrics are ones that are Bible and that not only are tolerable or not not incongruent with the Bible, but actually are drawn out of Scripture itself. That means we should not merely sing a song because it's sentimentally valuable to us, because it reminds us of a time. It reminds us of an experience. You could put on virtually any 80s song that there is, and my wife would have an enjoyable feeling come over her. But that doesn't mean that those are the kind of songs that we should sing on a Sunday morning, just because it makes us feel good, just because it reminds us of some sentimental moment. We should sing songs that are not merely sentimental, but songs that are true. So too, we should sing songs that are not theologically vague, but instead theologically precise. We should sing songs, hear me carefully when I say this, I don't mean to to be offensive, but it, it may be for a second, so hear me out. We should sing songs that a person who is Jewish, who doesn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, or a person who's a Muslim, or a person who's a Mormon, could not sing along with us happily. We should sing songs that are thoroughly and explicitly Christian, theologically precise, not vague. One application point here before we move on to the rest of it is that because our songs should be regulated by Scripture, uh, this is one of the reasons why the, the sort of songs that we sing comes under the purview of the overall word ministry of the local church and that a pastor's elders should be those not who are micromanaging and picking every song, but who should have oversight over what songs we sing or don't sing. Because it's an aspect of, a major aspect of the overall word ministry of our local church. So this has worked out in different ways over the, the last several years uh, at FBC Diana. Uh, most, most recently, what we've, what we've tried to do is is the pastors, elders, we kind of curate a song list and Russ and the other uh, members of the praise team choose from that selected song list in order to uh, have songs prepared for us each Sunday. It's very, it's very unimportant the specific method by which we choose the songs. What's most important is, is that our songs are regulated by Scripture. This is vitally important. A second answer to what should we sing is that we should sing songs that most of us can learn to sing. We should sing songs that most of us can learn to sing. If the, if the goal is that the people on stage are not the choir, but rather these are the song leaders and all of us are the choir, if that's the goal, well, then we should sing songs that most of us can learn. And that is that we should sing songs in a key that most of us can reach with some practice. Uh, notice I didn't say all of us because some of us are just out of luck when it comes to reaching any kind of a key. But that most of us, a key that most of us can reach with some practice. And so when we sing, we should practice singing together. Right? As we sing together on Sundays and we get practice singing every time we gather together. And we should, we should try our best to come along and, and progress in the way that we, that we sing. This does not mean that we should only sing in, you know, middle of the road key that everybody can hit. That's not true. But generally speaking, we should sing in a key that most of us can reach with some practice. 
We should also sing, that, sing songs with lyrics that most of us can understand with some effort. So when you first become a Christian, you don't know all the biblical words for all the stuff that you now believe, but you get to grow and learn to understand them better. Well, so too with the songs that we sing. We might be able to point out some of the words that we sing and some of the songs that we sing and kind of make fun and say, who in the world knows what Lord Sabbath is? I don't know what that is, right? I know what that is. It's because I've given some effort in understanding what does it mean that we sing that Jesus is Lord Sabaoth. That's a transliteration of an old word that means that he's the king of angel armies. It's not necessary that you know what that word means, but it's a good word. And I don't think we should throw out the entire song just because that one word is one that we might stumble over a little bit. What it might actually do is cause some of us to do a little homework and find out what in the world that word means. So we should sing songs with lyrics that most of us can understand with some effort. A third feature of the songs that we should sing uh, uh, that most of us can learn is that we should sing in a style that basically fits our cultural context with much humility and much charity. So what I, what I don't mean here, and this is, this is the place where most of, you know, if you were around church in the um, you know, 90s and early 2000s, there was a thing, uh, some of the young folks in the room, you, you might not be so surprised to learn this, but there was a thing called the worship wars. The worship wars. And as I said, if you've been in church a little while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In the in 90s and early 2000s, there were wars over what kind of songs we would sing. And it wasn't, are the songs biblical? It wasn't, are these, are these songs heretical? It was, is it traditional or is it contemporary? What style is it? This is incredibly unimportant when it comes to what kind of songs we sing. Basically, we should sing songs that match our cultural style. Now, that might mean it's somewhat eclectic. That might mean we're all, we all basically come to the table with a similar, uh, a familiarity with a certain style. And we should sing songs that basically reflect who we are. But we shouldn't try to be somebody that we're not. But Matthew Merker, he points out that we should do this with charity and with humility. He says it like this. For every song that resonates with you in its musical style, there are probably church members who are laying down their preferences for your sake. So remember that. If there's a song that you think, oh, this is really familiar to me. I like the way that rhythm goes. I like the way that beat is. I like where that key is. There are probably others in the room that are having to work to participate with you in that song. And so let's give and take when it comes to style. A third feature of what kind of songs should we sing? We should sing songs that represent the full range of the Christian experience. And this is the last thing that I'll say about it before I summarize. But this is also very important. Carl Truman wrote an article some years ago entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? In fact, he said that in, before writing that article, he had asked uh, some, some churches that he'd been uh, speaking at, he'd asked them that question, what can miserable Christians sing? And he said almost every time the, the congregation would just kind of laugh at the question, assuming that there, there was no such thing. But he would probe them harder and say, no, wait a second. Don't you know that there is such a thing as a miserable Christian? And what, what should those Christians sing? And so then Truman wrote this article. Basically, his point was that from his perspective, many churches today seem to have bought into the American dream and made that Christianity. His idea was that many Christians seem to expect that the Christian life, like the American dream, be a series of blessings and progress. Now, of course, many of us wouldn't say it like that, but 
if we only sing songs that speak of the joy and the triumph of the Christian life, then we are at least implying that we expect prosperity and happiness. Because that's all we're singing about. And we're not giving an opportunity for any other voice to speak up in the room. But what do miserable Christians sing? What do lonely Christians sing? What do guilt-ridden or grief-stricken or doubting Christians sing? Well, the Psalms give us an example of Bible that shows us how miserable and lonely and guilt-ridden Christians can sing. The Psalms give us a full array of the emotional experience. And so, too, I think our songs should include songs of lament, songs of confession, songs of grief, as well as songs of glory and comfort and hope. In short, this morning, I want to argue that because we are a body of believers who have been redeemed by the person and work of Christ, and because we are singing to praise God, to edify one another, and to testify of the truths we believe to non-Christians around us, we should all participate in congregational singing. Jonathan Lehman writes this, that churches sing because their new hearts can't help but echo the word which has been given to them. Whether those songs were written in the 16th century or today, they should echo scripture. And if there's any place where God's word should literally reverberate, that's where I'm getting that word from, it should reverberate in the church's songs. May God give us a joy of our salvation and may we sing well of it, both to God, to one another, and even to non-Christians around us. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.